0: make your way to, to Nehemiah 9, I still don't trust John, I got to see if he did anything during the passing of the peace. We're good now. <clears throat> um, yeah, Nehemiah 9, make your way over there, and uh, just to keep you kind of caught up at what's going on in, in, in the setting and, and, and what's going on in the, in the story here, right? Um, the, the Jews have gathered in, in Jerusalem and they have read uh, God's law and their immediate response is just to weep over it. And, and, and then <clears throat> they rejoice when uh, Ezra commands them to based on God's word. Uh, and then the next day they, they learn in God's word about this this feast, this feast of booths and how they are to uh, actually celebrate this by, by making these booths and, and, and what it looks like, this week-long celebration. And that began last Sunday in, in real life in the sense of on our, our calendar where it would begin um, and, and then they ended with this solemn assembly, which would be today on our calendar. Uh, now, it's two days after that <clears throat> is, is where we're at as, as Nehemiah 9 begins. Uh, and, and they are gathering with this express purpose of, of confessing their sins, of, of repentance is, is the goal here. Now, um, God has, has been bringing about this conviction in, in their hearts uh, through the reading of his law. And, and, and while they most likely in their own lives, right, they're going home and they're thinking about the things they're learning in God's law, they are most likely have, have felt conviction and confessed it and individually repented individually. And now we're going to see them do it corporately together. Um, and, and this is a huge passage, right? All of chapter 9, it's, it's nearly 1,400 words. And for that purpose, uh, actually, that's why I asked y'all to, to read it ahead of time. Uh, we're not going to read it all this morning. We're going to cover it all, and, and a lot of this is, is actually working through Old Testament stories, and, and, and so we'll kind of summarize our way through those, but, but we're going to work our way through it, but we're not going to read it all right now. Uh, we're just going to read a smaller portion, the f- portion, the first three verses, <clears throat> and then we'll skip to verse 32 and read, read through 35. Um, okay, so let's, let's begin. Nehemiah 9, verse 1. Now on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. I'll skip on down to verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. And yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Almighty God, you, you are in the truest sense of the word, awesome. And you have done and continue to do wondrous things for your people. And yet in every generation, we go awry. We go after idols, we rebel against you, against your word, against your ways, Help us this morning to understand how you relate to Israel in this passage and to understand how you still patiently, graciously relate to us today. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and lighten our minds as as we expound this passage. In, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think you'll you'll better understand this passage if you understand just the, the simple structure of it to, to begin with. Now, the, the first five verses, and I want you to keep it open in, in front of you today, right? The first five verses is, is this narrative portion. It's telling us, here's what's going on. Here's, here's the setting for all this. And, and then beginning in verse 6, uh, on to the end, it, is actually... Um, a written record of of the actual prayer or one of the actual prayers uh, that were prayed on this day and and this particular one um, includes a great deal of history of of Israel's history and and a great deal of confession and a great deal of adoration and praise to the Lord we'll see and and so first these people right this is two days after after finishing up this 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 fattening up this uh, this time in this this week-long feast of booths and And now here they are together again, only this time they don't have the wine, they don't have the food, Uh, the rejoicing has has kind of come, or has come to a stop, Uh, and what we're told is they have been fasting. They've not eaten in at least 24 hours, probably longer at this point. Uh, if you've ever done that, you, you know those hunger pangs uh, that come over you, that you constantly are reminded, oh, I'm starving, I'm starving, I'm starving. And, and, and moment by moment, their, their, their hunger would remind them, right, that, that, that we're headed towards this time of confession. That's what we're headed for. They also come wearing sackcloth. It's, uh, it's this coarse fabric that was made from goat hairs. If you ever even petted a goat, you can imagine how incredibly... Um, Terrible, that is. It's often compared to burlap, which we kind of like in theory. But have you ever tried to wear burlap? It's a, uh, incredibly uncomfortable. It's itchy against your skin. Uh, and that's the whole point of it, in fact. The uncomfortableness, the itchiness. The, the, the fact that you don't actually want to be in this. And, and it's the point because it's a physical reminder that, that, that you and I, God's people, we shouldn't feel comfortable in our sin. And, and we read they, they come also, right, with, with earth on their heads. Dirt has been rubbed into their hair. It has been coated on, on their face and, and their arms. It's, it's all over again them. And, and again, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable, and, and every moment, the, the urge to just wash themselves, it's this mourning, sorrow symbolism there, right? And it, and it just reminded them that, that as they gather together, they are doing so to confess and to repent of their sin. And, and the whole process, right, of preparing to confess sin, that's absolutely lost on our generation. It's not something we do. We, we can't even fathom it. Why are they doing this? But, but it serves to engage our, our wayward hearts to, to draw us into this, this focus on, on the holiness of, of God so, so that we would rightly come before God and, and, and saying, right, it's that verse I, I quote so often from, from Isaiah, right? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Just... Dwelling on the holiness of the Lord drives them to the, <clears throat> this, this time of confession. See, confession should be a daily practice for every disciple of Christ. Further, corporate confession of sin must be understood as, as not just a response to worship, but an actual element of proper worship of the Lord. In fact, that's, that's why we have it in our, our, our corporate, uh, you know, our, our liturgy every single Lord's Day. Right there on, on page 9, we, we, we did it earlier, because, right, it's, it's, it belongs in the worship of, of the Lord. When, when we go on vacation, we enjoy worshiping with other congregations. We enjoy the experience, seeing how, how people do things differently. But one thing I've noticed is that it's, it's common for churches today to absolutely exclude this time of, of, of individual or corporate confession. And while it's still an enjoyable time of worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, it it feels just incomplete, like there's something still missing from from that experience of of worshiping God on those days, that time of just coming before him and and being in his presence. We then learn in verse 2 here that they separated themselves from foreigners for this time of confession. Right? There's this division that's happening here. Now understand, this is not merely about ethnic, uh, you know, an ethnic group separation as we are prone to think about it today. What's really at heart here is the purity of their faith, right? And in some instances where, where uh, they would not have excluded foreigners who had adopted the wholehearted worship of the Lord, you think of Rahab, you think of Ruth uh, as, as examples, but, but rather those who continue to worship idols, those who are not part of this covenant community, who don't have this relationship with the Lord to begin with. And, and, and some of whom we'll, we're later going to learn about are, are actually spouses of theirs. And so here they, they come and they stand and, and confess first their sins. Do you notice that's, that's plural? They're, they're collective sins. All of their sins, not just their individual sins. And I'll tell you this. When I first participated in a worship service with a corporate confession, my, my individualistic American mindset just staunchly objected to that. Why in the world would this church call me to confess sins I didn't even commit? Right? I might think, oh, there's a few of those, but, but I didn't do that. I've never done that. Why in the world would they call me to do this? Funny, at no point in, in my Christian life I, have I ever objected to receiving the righteousness of Christ, which I also didn't personally accomplish on any level. Now, when you are married, you are united, right? If one of you gets into debt... You're both in debt. And so while our, our culture yet, right, emphasizes this, the individual, that's, that's kind of the American mindset. It's where we think. It's, it's the, you know, the water we swim in, so it's hard for us to get our heads out of this, but, but Scripture emphasizes that, yes, you are indeed individuals. That's a reality, but we are also a people, a, a group. We are united together as the people of God, and even more so since the cross, right? So, because our union with Christ means that we are also united together. Right. If, if you are united to Christ, then, then you and I are united together because I'm also united to Christ. And you look across this room and, and overwhelmingly that's, that's the case. As, as the church, as the people of God, we must learn to view ourselves against everything that seems natural to us. We must learn to view ourselves not merely as individuals but as members of Christ's body, as one community. And so I can confess, since I haven't committed... Because I'm part of God's people. I'm part of this covenant community who has committed that sin. Now if you find corporate confession hard to get your head around, strange, how much stranger is what we see at the end of verse 2? Look at it there. They stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Right? Iniquities, the sins of their fathers. Say what now? It's not like Any of them at the time had rejected Moses' authority themselves. Nobody in that community still alive would have done that. Which they actually confessed to in verse 17. None of them had built the calf of gold and worshipped it as they confessed to in verse 18. There's other examples throughout this. So, So why are they confessing past sins of the covenant community? They're doing so because sin doesn't just nicely stay in the moment, in the era, in, in that exact instant, right? That the Sin is actually passed down from, from generation to generation, and that can be a confusing concept, but we, we see it a number of places in the scripture. The, the sin of their fathers has become a, a legacy of idolatry in their lives, a pattern of disobedience in, in their own life and, and, and unfaithfulness to the Lord, right? They've learned that from their fathers, and, and so they live that. In other words, their their father's sin has shaped them, influenced them. It's become their own sinful tendencies as well. When we can be honest about the sins of our fathers, the Christians who have come before us, we we no longer have to justify everything in our history. We can own up to it. We, We can say honestly, yeah, there have been some awful things committed in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, and we confess that, we repent of it. I can show you what God calls us to in his word and they didn't live that way. Absolutely, we can confess that. Which raises that question, are are we to confess the sins of our fathers as well? I've kind of already answered it. Yeah, there are times when it is appropriate for us as the people of God to do so. Our, our denomination, the, the PCA, spent a number of years considering how um, the elders and the members of, of our previous denomination that we came out of, and our current denomination as well, had, had sinfully treated people of other races. This is uh, a while back, years, what, 14, 15, when it really started being discussed. And, and then in the summer of 2016, our, our denomination wrote and approved a statement of confession for, for these sins of your fathers, if you will. I'll read you the first portion of it. It says this. Therefore, be it resolved, the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era, and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as segregation of worshippers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race. The exclusion of churches or elders from membership in the presbyteries on the basis of race. The teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage. The participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to neighbor. It goes on for four more paragraphs. If you'd like to, to read it, I, I put a link to it in our, our website, website's calendar event page. We, we've started putting relevant information um, in, in that worship event calendar page, right? I encourage you to check it out each week. Um, you can go to the website and see it, or, or if you sign up for the texting, you'll receive it on Saturday evenings. Anyways, uh, what I, I just read is, is my denomination and your denomination confessing our sins and the sins of those before us. Most of that list, right, are things you're like, I've never done that. Um, And and listen, our our denomination didn't do this. This is important. Our denomination didn't confess this sin because BLM or CNN or any other anachronism made it trendy to do so. It it was because Scripture, God's holy word, convicted us uh, of sin. Not the whole nation's sin. Not everything you might be reading about in the world, right, but our sin as Christians, as the church, particularly as Presbyterians, how we treated brothers and sisters in Christ who are of other ethnicities, what was wrong and needed to be confessed and repented of. And I appreciate the fact that our denomination did so. And so then we we learn in verse 3 what else they do, they they spent a third of their day reading and presumably explaining the expo- expir- expositing God's word, and another quarter of the day in worship and more confession. It's if you want to put those in hours, they spent three hours right reading God's word. They spent three hours in confession and worship. You're talking about six hours here. It's incredibly uh, long time, uh, and, and so. One of the things we we learn here is there is this distinct connection between reading or hearing God's word and and actual confession of of sins. Uh, Let me try to explain this to you. The the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14, asks this question, what is sin? How do we define it, right? And And it gives this biblically derived answer, sin is any want, right, lack of, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. hear what that says, sin is not defined by what, what is culturally considered evil, but by what God's word reveals and declares to us to be evil. A hundred years ago in our nation, sex outside of a marriage commitment, what was almost universally acknowledged as sinful, right? As a Christian, you would hold a view, right? And your neighbor, who has nothing to do with Christ or the church or anything, probably held the same view at that time. Uh, Today, only 14% of Americans uh, consider sex outside of a marriage commitment to be sinful, to be wrong. Sadly, once you uh, qualify, right, those who identify as Christians, that number only raises to 32%. You see, while people's opinions have changed and will continue to change, God's standards remain the same. And, and here is the, the connection to confession then is this, like when we, when we read God's word, when we're in it, when we're studying it, when we're seeking to understand it, when, uh, when that's the case, we become more and more of the way that God actually calls us to live. What is right and wrong? What are the expectations in that regard? Uh, how to obey him, how to love our neighbor well, how to conduct business in a way that is, is right and honoring to the Lord, how to restore relationships when, when, when we do sin against people. And, and if you and, and I are, are not in God's word freshly learning, not, oh, I've read that once before, I think I have a general idea, but, but in his word freshly learning what is right and what is wrong, then there's no way we're going to be convicted of sin. You might feel bad for some cultural thing that you keep hearing is bad, but you're not going to have a good sense of what God actually declares right and wrong. And so we must be spending time in God's word comparing the way that God calls us to live our life with this reality of, oh, here's how I am living my life. And now then we... We hear these words of adoration in, in what is a call to worship in verse 5. It says, you can see in your passage, it says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your gracious name, glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. All right, they begin, they go into this prayer, and the first thing they do is just focus on God. How wonderful and glorious God is. And from this point forward, we see that the, uh, right, the, the words of this, this corporate confession of theirs. Re- regarding this prayer, Derek Thomas comments, he says, reading this particular prayer with its unrelenting, God-focused perspective and an unfettered confession of personal and corporate sin should prove a tonic for tired, struggling souls. The prayer itself is brutally honest about their history. It recounts all the failure of God's people over and over from generation to generation, and it, and it recounts the faithfulness of the Lord to them despite that. It begins with a reverent address to God the Father. It restores this, this sense of just the weight of glory that, that is God, that, that we tend to think too little of God. We don't tend to think of Him uh, enough, or just the, the weightiness of what glory is. Listen to what He says, it says You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you, right? That host, that's angels, they worship you. And as the prayer goes forward, one of the amazing things you, you learn in this passage is that God remains the subject of every single sentence. Even in the midst of confessing their sin, God remains the subject. In verses 7 and 8, they reflect on, on God graciously establishing his covenant with Abraham. The rest of the prayer follows this this pattern over and over. right? It tells tells the story of of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It tells the story of uh, their journey through the wilderness after the Lord's delivered them from Egypt. Uh, It tells the story of their receiving the the promised land and all that the Lord does does to give that to them. And and the pattern that gets followed here, it goes like this. Uh, God finds his people in rebellion and suffering and in misery, right? and he forgives and them And and he blesses them greatly, uh, and they come back, and they love the Lord for a while, but but nevertheless, God's chosen people, again, were disobedient and rebelled against the Lord, and then we see God is patient and endures for a long while, but eventually he gives them over to themselves, he gives them over to their sin, uh, he gives them over to their enemies, and, and they fall back into that suffering again, and yet the Lord keeping his covenant always sustains them he always welcomes them back restores his people right as we we see in verse 31 if you want to skip a little further right it says nevertheless in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are gracious and merciful God I want to point out a few other observations that that happen in this passage, this this pattern. The the first of which is how incredibly specific they are regarding uh, their historical sins, right? It's it's this itemized list detailing to God and to everyone else just how terrible they were in response to God's goodness to them. They they confess, Lord, we have, and I'm going to summarize, these are all right from the passage. Uh, Lord, we have acted presumptuously, we have been proud, we have been stubborn, we, we have made and worshipped an, an idol, we were disobedient, we were rebellious, we, we cast your law behind our backs, right, that we have no care for it. We, we killed your prophets. We, we committed great blasphemies, we did not obey your commands, we didn't serve you, and we have committed evil works, that's what we have done, <clears throat> In this confession, they equally give the details of God's mercy throughout it. Right? They confess, God, you you heard the cries of our fathers. You you performed signs and wonders for us. You divided the Red Sea. You have crushed our enemies time and time again. You led us and provided manna for for us from the sky. You provided water from from a rock in the wilderness. You gave us your glorious law. You gave us a land. You you gave us your good spirit to instruct us. You you provided clothes, and sustained our feet on the journey. You you gave us kingdoms, delivered us us from our enemies' hands. You have multiplied our children, and you have given us vineyards and orchards. And verse 21 puts it all incredibly succinctly, with simply, they lacked nothing. That's how God cared for them. When you pray, when you confess, be, be very specific. Not not just, I'm a sinner. It can include that. That's certainly true, right? But but rather, name the specific sin that you are coming to God seeking forgiveness for. And further, use biblical terms, and that will help you make sure what you are confessing is a biblical sin, and, and not just something general and cultural. Secondly, I want you to see at the heart of all their sin is the sin of idolatry. That's why idolatry has been called the the root of all sin. The very first commandment declares you shall have no other gods before me in Exodus 20. You you ever notice you you can't break any of the other nine commandments until you have first broken that very first one? As, As Martin Luther said, under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And my point here and pointing this out to you is this, that whenever you go to the Lord confessing your sin, seek to identify what is, what is the heart of that sin? What's the idol of your heart? What is driving you to sin in these other ways? The thirdly, notice they don't make any excuses for their sins. They're not saying, well, yes, we disobeyed, but, but because the situation kind of drove us to it, like we wouldn't have done it if, if not in this particular situation. They're not saying anything like that. Their, their, their confession also is not this rote mechanical uh, thing. But it is open. It is brutally honest. They are crying out as those who are guilty and belong to a people group. who are, you know, the people of God who are guilty. And, and they're looking to the Lord to just have mercy. Because they know that's their hope. But let us confess like that. L- lose the excuses and, and lay your guilt before the Lord. Fourth. They remember God's faithfulness. Over and over, they acknowledge the misery that sin has led them to. That's important for you to understand in your own battle against sin, right? They, they're able to see, we chose to rebel against the Lord, we chose to do what we want, we disobeyed Him, and it led us into misery ultimately, over and over, and, and yet they also remember, right, the, the fountain of grace that God has led them back to over and over again. Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, had a phrase, that, a phrase that is just beautiful, and I, I hope you'll hold on to this phrase, phrase for moments in your life uh, when everything around you seems to fall apart, maybe your marriage, maybe conflict with someone, maybe your, your finances, are just a mess, or, or your employment, or you find your reputation being crushed, when, uh, when you're in misery and you know that your sin, at least in some part, is, is the reason why. Rutherford says this, he says, grace grows best in winter. Grace grows best in winter. You remember grace is when we are receiving something that we absolutely do not deserve, when when we are neck high in our own guilt, when we are broken and contrite, that's when God gives us the greatest sense of his grace to us in the gospel. When it suddenly means the most to us. When you've sinned and come confessing and and repenting, the the, the message that God speaks to us through the scripture is this glorious reality that in Christ, right, I I forgive you, I am with you, I will continue to be faithful to you a beautiful message we need to know and, and so then verses 36 and 37 is them telling God now of their current situation right here here's what's happened in our history the things we've done the way we've responded the way you have been faithful Lord and now here's where we are right we're we're back we're back from exile kind of right we're still under Persian rule we're we're still captive, and, and they're asking God, once again, to, to rescue them from the consequences of their sin, or, or even the generation before them, right? Um, and, and, and then it ends with this reaffirmation of the covenant, which we're going to get into and look at next time with a little more detail. Um, and, and as we come to an end, I, I want you to look back at, at the end of verse 17. We, we've just confessed, or they've just confessed sin, and, and they... And then they confess the the following about the Lord, right? A a, a statement that they're saying is true about God. But you are a God ready to forgive. This is verse 17. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. The, The scriptures shine light on God's holiness. And at the same time, they reveal your lack of holiness. They, they reveal yours and my sinful ways. And, and when this happens, you, you can either continue to just go in your rebellion, you continue to go your way, you continue to, to, to do what has led you here to begin with to, that leads to misery, or you, you can turn and, and go to the Lord. You can go to God. Nehemiah 9 shows us that no matter how much God's people have rebelled against him. No matter how far we have wandered away from the Lord in his way, no matter uh, what we have done, he has never just done with you. If you will return to the Lord, he is there with open arms. You, you hear me? Your doubts are not too great. Your sin is not too terrible. Your, your anger is, is not too explosive, too too much. When, when you read Nehemiah 9, right, later this week, and I, I'm telling you this, we're going through it in a very broad way right here, but I, I want you to go back and read it, and when you do so, I, I want you to see that what, what, what all of Scripture actually teaches us, that, that there is no one who's irre, who is irredeemable by the blood of Christ. God's grace is greater than your sin, and the Holy Spirit can restore and rejuvenate you no matter where you find yourself today. But you're only going to find that in the Lord. You will not find it anywhere else. God, God welcomes all who come to him in repentance. And so go to the Lord. The last thing I, I want to mention is this. Church, learn to confess your sin to God and to others. Listen, I, I expect there is not a soul in this room who enjoys exposing their sins to others. You probably prefer everyone just assume you don't have any. And yet our our God has made it clear that the sanctification that we desire as His children most often involves other Christians. It it involves confession. It involves bringing our sin out of the dark corners of our our lives, of our hearts, and bringing them into the light where they can actually be dealt with. James 5.16 instructs us, saying, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Have you ever obeyed that commandment? Will you do it this week? I'd like you to, to learn to try. And I don't mean digging up the biggest sin you can think of and confessing that. Although that's certainly an option, right? But, but, but just verbally own up to, to your struggle. Maybe your struggle to just love someone. Maybe, maybe the way you, you've made an idol out of time or money or entertainment or pride. You'll be amazed how much confessing sin also helps you to understand God's grace. and You understand that, right? And also just how, how it gives us strength in the battle against sin. Because you confess that I find this person difficult to love. And, and suddenly you're, you're saying, okay, but I'm supposed to. I'm acknowledging that as sin. I'm acknowledging my need of forgiveness for that sin. I'm acknowledging my need of the Lord to give me the strength to, to not continue in that strength are in that sin. so It's a glorious thing, and so I encourage you this week. Confess your sin to someone, a brother, a sister in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you not permit our hearts to hear a passage like Nehemiah 9 and walk away unmoved. Show us our sin, show us where we are currently rebelling against you. Teach us to grieve for the sins of our forefathers, for the sins of the church, and the sins of our families and the sins of our own hearts and minds and hands. Lead us to genuine confession and the Holy Spirit keep ever in our minds what we have just learned about our God. That you continue to be ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding instead steadfast love. Yes, Lord, give us a sense of our sin that we might have a great sense of of your grace and your beauty and your holiness that we ask for. And this we pray for in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.